0: The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders, past, present and those emerging.
1: The following podcast may contain coarse language and descriptions of violence, which may not be suitable to all audiences. Welcome to the Soldier On podcast. I'm Hugh Remington. In this series, we'll be exploring the stories that highlight, celebrate and connect our veteran community. This episode will explore the inspiring story of veteran and Soldier On ambassador Ben Farinazzo. Ben was one of 5,500 Australians deployed as part of the Australian-led multinational peacemaking task force, the International Force East Timor, best known to us as Interfet, established to restore order and provide humanitarian aid after extreme violence in East Timor. The experience would prove to be a very rewarding one, but would ultimately lead Ben to unanticipated mental health challenges. Years after returning home, Ben suffered a mountain bike accident that nearly left him a quadriplegic or dead. It forced him to face his own mortality and his own mental health issues. This episode is an important human story that offers a perspective of resilience and self-reflection.
2: Look, I grew up in a a small farm on the outskirts of Brisbane. It was a wonderful life as a kid where you could just reach up to the trees and grab fruit off the vines and eat it while you ran around and played with your friends. And we were supported by a wonderful family. Growing up sport always featured strongly in my in my life. I used to particularly love athletics. Then I branched off into playing rugby and found the sport that became the true love of my life, which was rowing. When I went through school, the subjects I was most fond of were art and film and television and English. I loved poetry. I loved creating new things in art. And I loved storytelling through film. After school this week, I, I thought I'd become a painter down in Byron Bay and I reported back to my dad that that's what <laughs> I had decided to do and uh, he suggested perhaps that wasn't the only idea and I found myself talking to a friend of ours who had served uh, for a couple of decades in the military and that was the inception point. It wasn't long, though, after I'd put my application in that I'd found myself standing there in, in Canberra, at the steps of the... Uh, Australian Defence Force Academy, ready to undertake an army career. I guess it was something I naturally fell into, and I'm glad I fell into it. Perhaps the turning point was on our first ever field trip, and I remember walking through the bush with a number of mates, learning how to do an infantry patrol, and I absolutely fell in love with the idea of not only serving the country, but of being connected with the earth and surrounded by good mates. It felt right at that point. Going through officer training was one of the highlights in my life. I made friends, connections, and gained experiences there that last with me till today and beyond. In fact, if I hadn't joined the Australian Defence Force Academy, I wouldn't have met my wife, Jodie. In saying that, it was tough. There were times in my training where I wasn't sure if I'd get through. In my first year at the Defence Force Academy, I had a serious hang gliding accident and almost ripped my right arm off. At the same time, I lost my grandfather, who I loved, my nonal, so much. And that really affected me deeply. And I also experienced for the first time what it was like to fail academically. I think I got a 30% average my first semester, which was a hard lolli to suck. But in those moments, it teaches you something about yourself, about reaching out for help, not taking yourself too seriously, and just getting through another day. The highlight though was graduating and receiving the Chief of Defence Force Award for Leadership, Military and Academic Studies. And I was extremely grateful. Then you graduate and the real work begins. <laughs> so, yeah, I went on to become an infantry platoon commander, a lieutenant in the Australian Army and went off to the 3rd Battalion Royal Australian Regiment, which at the time was in Sydney and it was the Parachute Regiment at the time. That was, again, a wonderful experience. I went on to serve for a little over a decade. The highlight of my military career was my deployment as part of the International Force in East Timor in 1999. I was 25 years old when I went on that operation and it was an experience that changed me as a person. It changed a lot of us. Back in 99, East Timor was a much different place to what it is today. I was only a small piece of a big, big machine going in there to save people's lives and to create a new country. Personally, it was one of those unique experiences in life when you feel like you're in the right place at the right time you'd had all the right training, everything you had done in your life had prepared you for that moment. And just to see your mates, the other soldiers in full combat gear, doing what they do, oh, you know, it was the stuff dreams are made of. They were fantastic. It was a great moment to be standing there knowing that you're Australian. I was, Fortunate to be given the role as the interpreter for the Australian commander, uh, Brigadier Mark Evans, to assist with the negotiation of the handover of East Timor from the Indonesian through to the United Nations. It was a great role. I was able to travel around the country and see so much of East Timor and as someone who could speak the language, be able to communicate one-on-one with people on the ground, which was a gift. 21 years ago when we arrived at Comoro Airport in Dili, the place was on fire. People were nowhere to be seen except huddled up on the harbour waiting for a future that was unknown. The smell of death and decay was in the air and it was pretty clear straight up what our job was to restore hope. I started off in Dili, before then going down to Suai as part of the Western Forces. Suai, wow, that was an amazing town and amazing experience. The first day that we arrived, I remember being asked by the commander to go together with a small team to investigate Suai and to work out where it was that we were and what had happened in this place. One of the first images that I encountered was this image of an incomplete church, a church under construction, the Suai Cathedral. As I approached the church, the crunching of the stones turned to the crunching of shells as I looked down and realised that the landscape was filled with expelled cartridges from rifle rounds. I looked up and saw this kid with a little bandana on, sifting through the piles of burnt down, corrugated iron that had fallen down from the roof of the church. As we approached him in uniform, this kid was obviously quite scared and I had to say a few words to him to calm him down. Then this little kid, he just ran over and gave me this massive hug. (sighs) Okay, what's happened here? And he was the first one to explain to me what had gone on at that place. You see, the Indonesian military and the militia had systematically rounded up people like cattle in their villages and moved them into central areas for processing. From there, they were then picked up and taken away by vehicle or by boat to West Timor, uh, relocated. In the background, their homes of belongings, everything was destroyed. The priests at the local church had convinced some of the militia to allow this large group of children, women, families, to take shelter in the open ground between the two churches, where he had provided some sort of comfort and refuge for them, you can imagine his surprise when they were all released, hundreds of them down to the grounds of the Suai Church. And they set up these makeshift shelters with little tarpaul, plastic tarpaulins, nothing but the shoes on their backs. Then one day, the militia together with the Indonesian military arrived, started shooting at them. Some of them took refuge up in the new the scaffolding and the new church that was to be built, and the others moved to the old church and locked the doors and went in there to, take, to have prayers. Those that ran up with the scaffolding didn't get very far; they were shot down, and their bodies were piled up outside the premises. Those inside the church. Huddled and waited in prayer as the church was little light while they're inside, and as they tried to run out, they were shot or cut down with machetes, and then loaded on and those that survived were loaded on trucks. That kid that I met ran through the fire through a glass window, covered in burns and cuts as a result of the glass, and hid in the hills. For a month eating nothing but tree roots and then he came back to see if his mum and his sister were alive and so he helped the guy and he spent a little bit of time lifting up the corrugated sheets of iron to uncover the jewelry of his mum and his sister and we found them the fire was so intense there was nothing left but the jewelry That was a bit of a turning point for me to realise the horrors that humanity could inflict on itself. We rallied the local community together and held the first church service in Suai following the massacre. I remember Ken, our padre, conducting the service and I was doing my best to translate it for the local community. As we watched streams of people come down from the hills to gather on this basketball court, out the front of the school that was between the two churches. It was dead quiet. At the end of it, we asked this woman, Ibu Tetezina, if she or or any of the local people had anything that they'd like to say. It was at that point that she started singing, "Hallelujah." There were so many tremendous experiences. The other highlight was then standing in the middle of the muddy rain one night when one of the diggers ran into our compound and said, boss, there's a a person here to see you. You apparently get lots of visitors when you're in the middle of an operation in Sui. And I was, okay, and it was getting dark and I went over to the gate and I said to him, what's the issue? He said, you'll find out when you get there. And as we arrived at the gate there was this woman with her husband and her elderly mother and she was pregnant, about to have a baby. And so we brought her back inside the compound and I took her to our local army doctor and said, here you go. She's like, no, 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 you're not going anywhere. I said, look, RMC trained me for a lot of things but they didn't train me for this. She's like, no, that's okay. So there we were a small group of us, on a cold concrete floor in a burnt-out classroom in the middle of a thunderstorm as this beautiful woman, Umbelina, gave birth to this little baby boy. And I really needed that at that time, although I didn't realise I needed it. That sense of hope and what we were doing there was right. And if there was anything for me, that was a sign that what we were doing was good. I was particularly moved when... They named that baby, baby Benjamin. I wonder how his life has turned out. Mm. I think growing up as a kid, I used to love looking at the the good things in life. I was optimistic, fun-loving. What happened and what I saw in East Timor made me realise that there's another side of life. I think the hardest day in my time in East Timor was the day that I left. There was a sense that there was still so much more to do and it was my time to leave the country and return home, which I couldn't wait to do. I really wanted to come home and see my wife and my family and my friends. But on the flip side, I could also see that there was so much left to be done and the connection that I'd formed with the other Defence Force personnel and the locals in the community was really deep. I remember when I was told that it was time to go back home, it was a simple case of picking up my backpack, walking down to the tarmac, and looking for a plane heading back to Darwin. I was by myself. I didn't go back with the majority of forces. I left myself and it was a surreal experience I arrived in Darwin saw my wife gave her a hug then went home and had a shower and that was the end of it there was no fanfare there was no immigration or customs there was no reception I felt that although my boots are back on Aussie soil my mind was still back there It was hard to make sense of the normal things like going to supermarkets after being in an environment where there was not even running water. It opened your mind up to a broader view of the world and it took me a very, very long time to reconcile the terror and wonder of being alive. At the time when I got back from East team, I wasn't really sure what had happened to me. I just knew that things were different. My wife knew that I was different, but we didn't understand why or how. On reflection, it definitely looks like I needed support when I came back. Although at the time, as a young 25-year-old, having had the highlight of his military career, there was no way I thought I needed support. I was extremely grateful and proud of my service and being part of a wonderful Australian contingent as part of an international force. There was so much good about it, and there was so much that I was trained and prepared and ready for and embraced, that to think that something wasn't right when I got home just didn't even pass through my mind. But as time progressed, I began to realise that things weren't quite right. Initially, I started noticing fluctuations in mood, bigger greater depths of sadness or even an element of anger that previously wasn't there. In the early 2000s, young veterans or young soldiers didn't suffer from things like PTSD. That was for the Vietnam veterans, that wasn't for us. Mental health wasn't something that was discussed. It was just a case of, well, you'll be right, just, Keep going, get your fitness under control, and you'll be right. Crack on, and so I did for 12 years. Uh, I transitioned out of defence and went on to have a a wonderful career until the wheels started coming off. Over the course of the next 12 years, Jody and I are very fortunate to be blessed with three children: Max, Kelly, and Tom. That in itself is amazing. You think you've reached a pinnacle in your life by going on operations only for it to be eclipsed by having three children. It's Life has a wonderful way of just throwing gifts at you. But in 2012, I was at a point where I was a CEO of a couple of companies and trying to run my own business in the background, invested my mind in work probably to avoid facing other issues in my life. It was a Sunday and we had some argument at home about something significant like whose turn it was to pack the dishwasher, take the bins out, threw my hands up and stormed out of the house and found myself with nowhere to go. So I went to my office and I stood there on the corner going through the Beyond Blue website on my phone. I did the uh, Depression and the Anxiety Questionnaire from Beyond Blue and I was right off the, off the charts. So I figured, well, that must be wrong. Uh <laughs> didn't, didn't know what to do with that. So I followed the bouncing ball down and saw that you had to contact your doctor, your GP or Lifeline. And being a Sunday, GP wasn't there, so I called 13 11 14. Lady picked up the phone, I said, hi, I'm Ben. Don't know really why I'm calling. And uh, she said, Ben, that's okay. That's normally how the conversation begins. (sighs) Oh, I just lost it. I don't know what happened. Um, A massive outpouring of emotion. I don't know who that lady was, but whoever she was, she set in place a course of events which ended up saving my life, the first of which was actually going and organising an appointment to see my, my doctor. A few days had passed and I went and saw my doctor. By that stage, I'd kind of forgotten really why I was there and had to come up with some story as to why I was sitting in the, in the uh, doctor's clinic waiting for an appointment. I walked into my doctor's office and said, all dressed in my suit and the like, you know, uh, don't want to take up much of your time. I'm, I just need to pick up some sleeping tablets. She's like, well, well, just hang on a sec, Ben, like, what's going on? I said, oh, look, just not sleeping that well these days, just need some sleeping tablets to get on top of it and will be good. She, uh, she said, Ben, take a seat. Maybe we should have a chat about it. I was very lucky, so lucky. That doctor had experience in the military and with PTSD and mental health issues. And after a conversation, she said to me, Ben, I, I think you might have PTSD. For the second time in a week, boom, I, I was overtaken by a tsunami of emotion and didn't really know where I was at. Managed to straighten myself back up, though, and sit in the chair. I said, rightio, um, got that. So uh, what's the three-point plan we've got to address this particular issue? It's okay. I hear what you say. Um, Look, I broke my arm years ago. I'll just treat it like a broken arm. She said, no, Ben, it's not like a broken arm. It's more like cancer. If you don't give this thing the attention that it deserves... It could kill you. She was right. That set into place a range of support services from counselling to seeing a psychiatrist to go on to medication. But I still of the opinion that I could conquer this thing. She asked me if I wanted to talk to any of my mates or share it with anyone. I said, there's no point. By the time I do that, I'll be well and truly beyond it, having resolved it, having conquered it and it'll just be a waste of a conversation. So we kept it fairly private, between myself and my wife, mum and dad, close family, and that was it. And after a while I thought I had conquered it, I came off my medication, stopped my counselling, I was back on track. Took on a new job as CEO of Outward Bound Australia. Fantastic. And again, felt like I had that experience of being in the right place at the right time where everything in my life had brought me to that particular moment. One of the fortunate experiences I had whilst working at Outward Bound Australia was to meet with a young John Bale who was talking about establishing an organisation to support veterans and their families. An organisation that he'd hoped to call Soldier On. I was running some programs for veterans. We thought we'd team up. One thing led to another and I found myself with Peter Lay, Hugh Rimmington, Mark Donaldson and a wonderful group of individuals who could see a need in our society to support contemporary veterans and their families. And Soldier On was born. Little did we realise the core that would strike in the hearts of so many Australians. I don't know why that makes me emotional.
1: We'd like to take a quick pause from Ben's story to remind you that if you or anyone you know are dealing with a mental health crisis, there are links to a variety of support services in the show notes of this episode. Before we return to Ben's story, we'd like to shine a quick spotlight on an organisation that prides itself on supporting ex-serving members and their growth in a civilian career. That organisation is BGIS. Joining us to discuss BGIS's involvement with the veteran community are Tom Hazard. I'm the Account Director for Defence Industries. And Matt Smith.
3: I'm the regional business manager on the BJS defense account. So supporting Tom and uh, and a very passionate supporter of soldier on as well. So BJS is a global leader in integrated facilities management services. And by what we mean by that is providing end to end solutions to our clients. We have in the Asia Pacific region, 65 key client accounts and particularly the defence contract delivering services to Army, Air Force and Navy across the Northern New South Wales portfolio. So basically all the bases between
0: Sydney and the Queensland border. About 10% of our workforce are ex-service persons. You know, we've got uh, some New Zealand Defence Force in there as well. And then also veteran spouses. But, you know, we're keen to grow that number as much as possible
3: the serving member and the values throughout the defense force really align to our core values at BJS and one of them is unwavering integrity. We see a lot of alignment and similarities with those values throughout the broader defense force and how the ex-serving member when they have decided to leave the military can actually transfer those skills over into the private sector where they can have a a long enduring and meaningful employment and career uh, post-separation. being a global organisation as well really does allow us to leverage off our peers, certainly in North American industry, and I think they really helped us shape the Veteran Advocacy Committee that we have. We were very humbled to be announced as a finalist in the Prime Minister's Veterans Awards last year, and we've worked quite closely with another of our clients, BAE, really to sort of understand how they do best practice veteran programs to be able to sort of build upon that veteran advocacy group
0: that we've got. So we've had a, a first few workshops with our veteran advocacy groups to help identify for us what the best way forward is. So we've got some really valuable insight out of that. And I guess where we're looking is understanding what skills and capabilities defense members learn while serving, you know, and how do they translate across and what bridging program might be needed. So. You might get a Navy person working on a boat, you know, that's an electrician. What do they need to commercialise those skills and to be able to work, you know, in a built environment that may or may not be on a defence base?
3: BJS has been a proud Platinum Pledge partner with Soldier on for around five years now. Through that program, we've been able to support that networking program in our offices here in Sydney, but also attending a number of events around New South Wales. And we've also now started to expand that and we're attending the Pathways networking events in all states and territories, which is fantastic. We've also won a number of accolades from our our client and successfully have been awarded the base services contractor of the year three years in a row, which is a very prestigious award amongst our 10 base services contractor peers. And that did touch upon work that we do do in supporting the military, not only on the contract, but also how we can provide, I suppose, that broader support to veterans as well as small to medium industry, indigenous and NDIS as well. We are a large organization nationally, and we do have a presence in every state and territory. So we're able to expand on where we can provide placements, not only to those ex-ADF members, but also their families and spouses. And we sort of see that as a very important part as well, that if we can provide meaningful employment opportunities for spouses and family members, you're more likely to see a defense member stay for longer, Um, and it helps defense with their retention targets as well. But where they have made the decision to separate from the military, there's some great opportunities that we can discuss with them at those events around where their skills are transferable or where there might be a bridging program required to help them commercialise those skills so that they can then move on into
2: the private sector. It was a tough role at Outward Bound. One of the key areas that we had to address was the re Furbishment or rebuild of our national base out at Tharwa. Just as we were nearing the completion, my mental health took a sudden decline. I was on my way to work. My wife called me in the car. She said, Ben, you checked your email this morning. I said, no, no not yet, boss. She said, well, when you get to the office and you check your email, give me a call straight back. I said, oh, geez. I opened up my emails and there... Was an email from a very good mate who I'd served with in East Timor. It was a suicide note. I rang Jody straight back and I said, Jody, I need to go to be with him. She said, I thought you'd say that. Your flight leaves in an hour. I managed to arrive after the police had found him and it was fortunate that he was still alive. And as we waited for him to come to, I remember saying to him, you can't do this. How could that happen to a man as wonderful as he was and is? And as he started coming to and sharing to me his story and in that moment I realised how close I was to being where he was I boarded a plane and came back to Canberra and I don't know what was going on with me. My body just started shaking uncontrollably as if my mind was shaking uncontrollably. And I figured if I just got enough sleep for the weekend then I could get back to work on Monday. But despite my best effort, I just could not close my eyes. Every time I did, I would jump awake and... My body was just in some form of shock. My wife found me in the fetal position on the floor in the shower. I couldn't talk, but I did manage to ask her to do one thing. I asked her to call John Bale, and John, together with the team of soldiers, got me into the hospital that I needed to go to to get the help that I needed to get in order to stay alive. I thought I'd just go to hospital for a little time just to get on top of it so I'd get back to work maybe in a few days. All in all, I ended up spending about a year in a mental health hospital. Every time I tried to come home, the wheels would fall off again and my beautiful wife would take me back to get the support that I needed. That was was tough. And in that hospital, St John of God Hospital in Richmond, I met so many other members of the Defence Force, the Australian Federal Police, our paramedics, frontline personnel suffering from so many different types of mental health issues and yet so committed to service and to supporting others in their community. It revealed to me the challenges that we face in our humanity and not on a foreign shore but in our own country. And how this can go on and no one talk about it. I question the others in those hospitals as I questioned myself and said, why don't we talk about it? The Australian Federal Police guy said at the time, it's because we don't recognise PTSD and if you put your hand up, you get kicked out. Or some of the other guys in defence saying, well, I'll lose my security clearance I'll get discharged, and then what chances have I got to get a job after that? I'll lose my house. I'll lose my life. I've got no other choice except to tough it out. And so many of these men and women would take their annual leave and come and spend time in hospital instead of spending time with their kids on the beach. And off their families would go. They would come into the mental health hospital And then when the year came by, they'd reunite with their families just in time to go back to work. I thought our country can do better than that. But I was in a position where I still needed to work it out for myself. So I was still keen on conquering this thing called PTSD. And there was this padre at St John of God Hospital in Richmond and he'd been looking out for me as I was going about my routine of going to art room and physiotherapy and the like. I knew he wanted to have a chat with me but kind of wasn't ready for the whole religion down your throat thing. So I was em- <laughs> employing my best uh, escape and evasion techniques to avoid him and I was headed up to the art room one day when he kind of jumped out from behind of a tree and I was like, Ugh! and he was like, hey, Ben. I was like, oh, g'day, uh, Padre, good to see you. Um, look, everything's good. We're fine. He's like, no, 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 can I just chat to you for a sec? I said, sure. And he said, Ben, I've been watching you over the last few weeks and I've been noticing you're doing everything right. Getting up in the morning, going for a walk, going, doing some therapy, going to the art classes, doing your physiotherapy. I said, yeah, sure, I want to conquer this thing. He said, I understand that. He said, I think that's wonderful but can I give you another way of looking at it? Yeah. So what if you saw every day more as a learning opportunity? So what do you mean? It's an opportunity for you to simply learn more about yourself and the world that you live in. So rather than getting up every morning, having to conquer it, conquer yourself, you could explore the world and see every day as a new day that you'll be grateful for. And instead of having to conquer it, you remain unconquered. (laughs) I had never thought about life like that before. I was like, whoa, you totally changed the way that I looked at it all. So we set myself a goal of getting home for Christmas. And I remember having achieved that and walking up the stairs to see my wife and my kids. It was one of the most satisfying experiences in my life but didn't go quite to plan. You see, I'd always wanted a mountain bike. So I realised the, uh, the benefit of doing physical exercise for your mental health, and I couldn't run because I got one of these dad bods, uh, vet bods, which is like a dad bod except your knees are worse. And so I couldn't run anymore without putting, you know, potholes in the bitumen and destroying my legs in the process. So I thought I'd get a mountain bike. Kids got me a mountain bike for Christmas and a couple of weeks later I decided to go for a ride up in the hills behind a house in Queanbeyan It was a beautiful day. I remember seeing the light shining through the gum trees onto the track, race along the top of the hills. I went up there with my brother-in-law and we were going through the tracks and then I came down this one hill to cross over a creek line and I could feel myself getting a little bit dizzy. I thought, I just need to get home and I'll just finish this last bit off and go home. But as I came down this hill over this small footbridge, I went over the edge, I went over the top of my handlebars and went face first into a rock, smashed my teeth, my ribs, broke my neck in two places and my back in four places. Shit, I could feel myself dying right there. And I was pissed off because I thought here I'd just gone through so long thinking about how not to kill myself when all of a sudden my life was all of a sudden taken away in an instant. And I (laughs) I was pissed off. I was like, that can't happen now. It can't happen now. I didn't know what was wrong at the time. I just knew that I was in a bloody hurt locker and somehow, thanks to adrenaline, managed to grab my neck and walk a kilometre out of there to again find my wife waiting for me in a car to take me to hospital. By the time I got to hospital, I couldn't move. The next thing I remember was being hunted or chased and I was running through this burnt-out village or town And I just had enough of it. So I just turned to face whatever this thing was that was chasing me. And I just remember, you know, firing like a belt-fed mortar into this thing, swinging away when the voice of my doctor crept through my consciousness and said, Ben, do not move. You've broken your neck and your back. If you move, you could be a quadriplegic or die. It was at that point I realised I'd hit rock bottom. Mentally, I was shattered. Physically, I was shattered. I totally lost the ability to look after myself. And every time you try to breathe, all you can feel is agony. only thing I did at the time, this is a word of advice from my mum, was to pray to the gods who be to be granted grace. And I just would lay there and say, grant me grace, grant me grace and picture a healing light coming over me and protecting me and just giving me one more breath. Not only could I not feed myself or wipe my own backside, I just couldn't even think. And you ask yourself some pretty straight down the line questions as to what you're doing this for. I remember saying to myself, well, What would happen if I lost my job, if I lost all my connections? And I said, well, what would happen if I lost all my friends? Would I still want to live? What would happen if I lost my family, my kids, my wife? Would I still want to live? What would happen if I could no longer move again? And I lost the ability to step out into the world. But I still want to live. So you start peeling back the layers of the onion. And it's a point in time in life that I describe as walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And it was walking through that darkness that I saw something in the distance catch my eye. And as I walked over to it, it was a... A small flame. That flame was me. And that tiny little spark was on the verge of going out. So I remember thinking the only thing that I've got left that I can control is my breath. And I don't know whether it was a throwback to outward bound or what it was like as a kid growing up on the farm, but you get that little spark and you breathe on it just gently, and you can nurture it to become a glow. And I remember just thinking about breathing on this tiny little spark and watching it glow and nurturing it into a flame. And as I did that, I thought, what would happen if I managed to live for one more day? What would that be like? Imagine what it would be like to kiss my wife again, to be able to hug my kids again, even things like what it would be like to rub my fingers through the grass, to hear the birds in the morning, to watch the sun come up. (laughs) And I even thought a crazy thought of imagine what it would be like to sit in my rowing boat back on the water again at the beginning of a brand new day. And it was in that moment I thought, I want to return to life. So with the tremendous support of so many people across our country, all led by my wife, who did the majority of the heavy lifting, we started that process. I slowly learned how to walk again. At the same time, learning how to make sense out of the madness in my mind, I had the wonderful support of a physio, Matrix physio, I remember them giving me a stick and trying to teach me how to lift my arms up holding a stick. We then progressed to doing a bit of bench press and then went to a bar and then we started adding a bit of weight to that bar. Then went to counselling sessions, learning how to do something as simple as to breathe again. And breath by breath, step by step, Kilo by kilo, I found myself back at home with my family, and then eventually back on the water in my rowing boat, watching the sunrise. And it was then when I realised, I said to myself, I've done it, I'm back. It was in the process of getting back into rowing a sport done through Soldier On, I found myself gaining more and more confidence. I reconnected with the veteran community. In particular, I learned from a guy, Gary Wilson, about a thing called Invictus Games. And they said, well, why don't you train with these veterans? It'll be great for you. Not only help with your physical rehabilitation, but also help mentally and with your social connection. And if you're interested, you could try for this thing called Invictus Games. Had no idea what it was about. You're given the material which says if someone asks you what the Invictus Games is about, you read off the prepared message, which is the Invictus Games is an international multi sport event for wounded, injured, and ill veterans. And you say this enough that it doesn't really mean anything to you. You could glance a light in the eyes of other veterans who competed. Invictus to get a sense of what the spirit of it was like but without a reference point it's hard to explain so it was just a case of going along and joining a few mates and meeting a few new people and trying to work out what sport you're going to do. Well I thought well I'll give indoor rowing a go that's uh, the best thing that I could probably do and because it fits in with the way that I'm learning to strengthen my body, I'll probably do something called powerlifting, although I had to Google what that was. Then the next thing you know, you find yourself at the Australian Institute of Sport about to undergo selection. When I was at my lowest point, there was nothing in my mind along the lines of Invictus Games. The only thing that I wanted to happen was to be able to breathe without it hurting in every cell of my body. I hadn't been out of my home overnight for three years. It was the first time since going into hospital that I'd step foot out of my home to spend a night in a foreign environment like that. It was overwhelming and after that first weekend, I wasn't sure whether I'd be able to keep going. Fortunately, with the support of my wife and the professionals, we made a plan. Just get to the next one. And after that selection camp, it was just get to the next one. Just keep doing your best. That's all you needed to do until that surreal moment where you presented with your green and gold uniform and congratulated that you've been offered a position in the Invictus Games team to represent your country and sport in an international event and you're waiting for the cameras to jump out and for (laughs) people to say, surprise, you're a middle-aged dad, you're not really supposed to be here, but I'm like, that's okay, I'm just getting selfies on the way. (laughs) It was so surreal, so surreal. The moment that I remember very clearly at the beginning was arriving at Sydney Olympic Park and realising that, oh, my God, this is like an Olympic Games for veterans. And there was so much love and support. Ended up competing in two events at the indoor rowing, the endurance event, which is a four-minute race to see how far you can go in four minutes, and the sprint event, which is a one-minute race, how far you can go in one minute. I was doing the warm-up with all the other competitors in a massive hall and I had my headphones on and I was listening to my iPod and the song I was listening to was Wild Theme from Mark Knopfler and the Local Hero soundtrack. Just trying to keep my breath gentle, ticking my legs over, keep my mind calm. Coach came and tapped me on the back, said, Ben, ready to go in five. That was a cue for me to switch over the soundtrack to the Gallipoli soundtrack. And I pictured all of our Aussies and Anzacs on the shores of Gallipoli, and I thought about the hell that they must have gone through. I thought about all the men and women that had served our country since, keeping that spirit of those early Anzacs alive. Then I thought about the 500 competitors around the world and everyone that had tried for those positions. And then I thought about everyone else who weren't even well enough to even try. I thought about the loved ones, the carers, and all those people that had supported them. And I just wanted to do it for them. That was a goal, to do your best. With that, I took my headphones off. I had to remember to breathe all the way down to my toes. Get on that machine and breathe. Then when the time was right, become the human hammer and smash the shit out of that thing and push the fear into God, of God into anyone who wanted to come close. And then just when you thought you were done, take one more stroke. That was the essence of, of the <laughs> game plan. <laughs> Breathe, smash like a hammer, and then take one more stroke. Got to be something in that about life, I reckon. And I was fortunate to have done my best. I remember running over to my family at the end of the race just to celebrate having just finished when this lovely woman kind of tapped me on the back and said, Ben, you've got to come over for presentation. I thought, okay, I'll go over there. And she said, yes, you mean, you need to line up. Oh, I like, didn't realize that was part of the medal ceremony. When I realized, that I'd won gold for Australia. I couldn't believe it. But then I still had one more race to go, which was a sprint event. And I had 50 strokes. And that event had 50 people in it, 50 amazing souls. And I remember when we were told to go, I ripped on that handle like a rusty victim mower and didn't let go. But it was somewhere in those 50 strokes that I felt like I was on the wings of an angel. I could just feel my soul lift. It was a bloody good feeling. Again, I'd done my best and was fortunate to get an equal gold for Australia, which was terrific. When I grabbed that first medal, I gave it to my family to say thank you because without them, I wouldn't have got it. The second medal, though, was for me, and the Australian gold to remind me that despite the darkness and the challenges that we face in life, the sun will always continue to shine, even when we are crawling through the depths of despair without a ray of hope that it's important to just keep going because you never know what surprises life has waiting for you just around the corner. I often talk about how Soldier On helped save my life. And what I mean by that is that prior to Soldier On's existence as an organisation, there really wasn't much of a conversation, if any at all, about the impact of service on the lives of our veterans. Soldier On helped create that national conversation to help shape our national policies, our service platforms and delivery, more importantly, those conversations over the dinner table to address those underlying issues that, if not given the attention that they need, will result in people losing their lives. Soldier on helped give me a voice. It helped give me a structure to the madness that was going on in my head. Helped give me a community, a connection of like-minded individuals who understood the challenges that I and many of my mates faced. We've come a long way in terms of opening up the conversation about mental health. That conversation needs to continue, but it needs to be more than talk. We're starting to see some action, get traction in the community as a result of governments and community organisations and businesses coming together to make sure that people get the actual support that they need more than talk. Everyone deserves a chance and a shot. When I reflect on Ben, I understand he's a fragile human being, living inside a body of flesh and blood and bone that can be broken and a mind that can be busted if you push it too hard. I'm just a human. Every day that Ben lives is a bonus. That little spark in the darkness. It's there. It's not bigger than anything that it needs to be and it's not smaller than anything it needs to be. It's just what it is. And it'll continue to carry me through whatever storms in life there might be and I'll continue to protect it and nurture it until this time has come. Whenever the gods may be decided that is the time. But it's not today. Hilarious!
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soldier On podcast. Soldier On is a not-for-profit veteran support organisation delivering a range of services to enable serving and ex-serving veterans and their families to thrive. If listening to today's podcast has brought up any personal concerns for yourself, a list of support services can be found in our show notes. The Soldier On podcast is produced by Smartfella Media with special thanks to the team at Artsound FM in Canberra. I'm Hugh Rimmington. Thanks for listening.
0: This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network.